Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. The unauthorized practice of law is a crime in the United States, punishable by steep fines and time in prison. But today we'll be talking about an unusual exception to that rule for inmates known as jailhouse lawyers. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Philip Miller, who in the not so distant past was a jailhouse lawyer himself. Philip, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, Joel. Why don't we start with your experience? How did you end up in a position where you could become a jailhouse lawyer? So my story, well, initially, you know, I had to get arrested first. Um, <laughs> that was unfortunate. And so the way I became, um, started off as a law clerk in the state system was my first job. I was assigned to the mess hall at Five Points Correctional Facility. So yeah, that's something that, you know, some of our viewers may not actually know that, you know, while incarcerated, inmates are given jobs. Yeah, you have to have a job uh, while incarcerated, either a job or some type of educational program if you need it. So for people who did not graduate high school, they would have to attend GD classes. Um, but if you did, then you would take either vocational or a job assignment or both. Um, so I ended up in the mess hall first, and for about a month, I was thinking, you know, I'm still trying to actively fight my case with appeals. And I began going to the law library there, and I was just very dissatisfied with the amount of service or the quality of service I was getting. Like, I had literally just taught myself so much in a short amount of time um, in the previous jail I was at. So when I got there, it felt like these clerks were just not on the same level as I was. And I was very disappointed that these were people who were actually um, helping others. So I went to the law library supervisor, who was a, C a corrections officer, and I explained to him, I told him literally, and it was kind of boastful of myself, and I don't know, I'm a little bit egotistical, but I told him, I said, your clerks suck. <laughs> I said, if you- compare, Direct, very direct. Yeah, I said, if you compare me to any of these or give me any test you want, I said, I guarantee you I'll outperform anyone in this law library. And he just stared at me for a second. He didn't say anything. He just stared. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to hire you. <laughs> and that was it. And he hired me. And that was a deviation from the norm because to become a law clerk in the state system, in the state prison system in New York State, you actually have to take a legal research course and then take a test and pass it before you can become um, a law clerk. Isn't working in the mess hall kind of a good job? You have you know access to food? Yeah, so there's definitely perks to work in the mess hall if that's what you want to do. Definitely access to more food, um, probably better pay than other uh, positions throughout the facility. But when you're fresh into the state system, your main concern for most people is freedom, trying to reduce your sentence or have your conviction vacated. Um, and so that was where my concern was. I wanted to, one, not only help others, but also work on my own case. And I wanted more access to law library other than going once or twice a week. And you had a, a unique case. Do you mind if we talk no, about it? No, fine. So uh, you, you were convicted for armed robbery, is that right? Yes. And your partner in crime, um, if you will, was not convicted. He was tried separately and acquitted. Yes. I'm sure that gives someone pause or makes one think a lot about the, the case, the trial, what went wrong, what, what could have gone differently. Yeah, it should give someone pause if, you know, a regular... You know, if, if you approach it, if you approach it regularly. Um, so I had assigned counsel, and my co-defendant had um, retained counsel, and they were the quality of services we both received were vastly different. So from the beginning, my attorney felt he wasn't getting paid enough. He was getting the court the court rates for assigned counsel. He was a private attorney on the 18B panel, and so he was getting whatever the 18B rate was at the time. So in some states like New York, the court will pay lawyers to serve as public defenders and in other states uh public defenders kind of work <clears throat> in in their own regime and just mentioning for our national yeah. audience and so my attorney felt he was not getting paid enough money and so he told me from the beginning i'm only going to focus on a plea for you because i'm not getting paid enough he so he told me at one point if your family can come up with another ten thousand, then i can start to think of a trial but he said if not then only a plea because i don't have time or the resources to look to focus on trial for your case and ignore my other clients. And so from the beginning, his focus was only plea. On the other hand, my co-defendant's attorney, from the very beginning, his focus was trial. Like he heard the story, he heard what happened. Um, we both of us confessed to the same crimes. And what ended up happening is we were both, um, the term is coercion. So physically, the police beat us uh, in the precinct for our confessions. 
And his attorney said, you know what, that's enough for me to prepare for trial. And so he did it. And so while I was pleading guilty, my co defense attorney was going to trial. And so he presented evidence um, that it took place. The jury believed him. And then they were legally allowed to exclude the confessions from their consideration of the case. And literally, there was no other evidence. There was no fingerprints, no eyewitness identification, nothing. And so because those confessions were excluded, there was, there was no longer evidence to support a conviction. And they acquitted him on all charges um, at the did, same time. Did this trial take place after yours? No, right before mine. Right before? Like weeks before mine. So there wasn't something you could do? You couldn't say, hey, look, lawyer, like my friend was able to successfully try his case? Yeah, so because I had pled guilty, um, judges have an, an interest in what's called finality of a judgment. And so basically when it's over, they wanted to say over. So you had already pled guilty. Yeah, and so as soon as he was acquitted, I told my attorney, I said, can we file a motion to withdraw the plea and go to trial and prepare? And he was, you know, he just told me, no, it's not going to happen. It's too late. And so, you know, my next step was just sentencing after that. And so I went to state prison and my co-defendant went home. So you're in prison and you're thinking, gosh, this doesn't seem fair. Oh, yeah. It wasn't fair for a bunch of reasons. One, I was 19. I had received a sentence of 20 years. It was my first offense. I was a college student at the time of my arrest. You know, there were so many things that indicated I was not a career criminal and did not need this much time to, you know, realize I should never do this something this stupid again. Um, so it was unfair on that level. It was unfair on the representation I received from my counsel. Uh, unfair that um, the disparity between my, my result and my co-defendant's result was unfair. 20 years versus freedom for the same case. Um, there are a bunch of levels of unfairness. Let's talk about right to counsel. This is so important that it's written into the Bill of Rights. You have a right to counsel in criminal cases. That goes away. That goes away after conviction in the United States. So it goes away to the extent that um, once your case is over, it's over. But in, in the U.S. and in all states, um, the right to counsel extends throughout the first appeal as of right from your conviction. So on that first direct appeal, you still have the right to counsel. The right to counsel for a long time only applied through the to the federal courts through the Sixth Amendment, which is where it's born. And then in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Sixth Amendment was actually applied to all the states um, through the Fourteenth Amendment. So if you're convicted at you know trial court, then you can appeal to the state's appellate court. And at that point, if you lose or the, or the appellate court fails to take the case, that right is extinguished. The right essentially disappears at that point. Unless there's some other statutory uh, provision that allows for assignment of counsel, um, the right is gone after the first appeal is concluded. And that's, you know, the reason why legal help inside is so important, because many of the people who are incarcerated do not have the funds to privately retain counsel on the outside to do any further work on discretionary appeals or discretionary post-conviction motions. And so to, so to address that issue, um, the Supreme Court in Bounds versus Smith said that in order for full access to the courts to have any meaning, the states need to provide some sort of way to make that happen. And it left it open for the states to decide how they want that to happen. So they don't have to have a team of attorneys on standby for the population. They could, if they so chose to do that, they could. Or they could have quasi-professionals like paralegals uh, come to the facility. Or they can train inmate law clerks. Um, at, or they can provide a law library or any combination of those things. So the, the jailhouse lawyer isn't some constitutional provision. It's, uh, in fact, legal representation by necessity. It's because states aren't stepping in and offering free access to attorneys for inmates, this was the the best thing that they could get access to. Yeah, so you have the right to access to the court. Um, so that right does not disappear even when you're incarcerated. And Bounds versus Smith just said, you know, it's up to the state to choose how they want to do it, but they have to do it in some way. When it comes to jailhouse lawyers specifically, one of the main cases from the Supreme Court was Johnson versus Avery. Do you remember what happened in that case? Johnson was an inmate in Tennessee, but he was what was referred to back then as a writ writer. He was helping other inmates repair writs of habeas corpus. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court had held in a previous case that you know, a state could not create any kind of impediment to, to an inmate's ability to file a writ of habeas corpus. Um, and so Johnson extended that and said that it should apply to 
this individual because he was helping people who might have been illiterate or functionally illiterate. So Johnson in this case was was helping fellow inmates. Tennessee uh, brought charges against Johnson? He had disciplinary charges because they said it, he was violating um, facility rules by providing assistance. Um, the Supreme Court interpreted that as like an impediment to other people who needed to access the writ of habeas corpus. So there are some restrictions on, I mean, it's not, it's not a free-for-all. The courts didn't say inmates have a blank check to, to practice law while they're in jail. What are some of those restrictions and how have you seen states interpret it? Okay, so I can talk about New York State. So Bounsworth Smith established at the court that, this, that each state has to provide some method of access to the court when it's up to them to choose if they're going to have attorneys, paralegals, inmate law clerks, law libraries, etc. New York State decided to go the route of law libraries and training inmate law clerks to provide the assistance inside. And so Bounds v. Smith was later modified by Lewis v. Casey. So Lewis v. Casey modified uh, Bounds v. Smith by saying, the state does not have to provide law libraries that are so complete that it basically turns people into litigation engines. For example, you don't have to have a complete law library like every listing that you'd find in a law in a law firm. As long as the state provides what's necessary to challenge the conviction or conditions of confinement, that's the bare necessity that needs to be in a law library. So Lewis versus Casey clarified that and you know, it chipped away a little bit at Bounds versus Smith. Lewis versus Casey also added another or clarified something they did not clarify in Bounds versus Smith, which was if you were going to sue based on the lack of access to the court, you now had to show that the state's um, impediment to your access to the court actually caused you harm in some way. Like it made you miss a, a filing deadline or got your case thrown out or dismissed or some other thing like that. And so after Lewis versus Casey, it was clear that law libraries was just one constitutionally acceptable method of providing access to the court um, and that law libraries did not have to be so complete or mirror what was actually in a law firm. New York, however, I think is actually one of the more progressive uh, states in terms of law libraries because their holdings where they actually mirror what's what you find in a, a law firm in the, in the street. Um, so they have everything, every type of civil law, federal case, federal statutes, the entire uh, United States Code annotated, the entire uh, McKinney system, federal so, practice. So are these procedure. actual law books, or are we talking about, uh, I don't know, a LexisNexis or you know, Westlaw subscription? So for many years, up until about 2010, New York's law libraries had only books. So it had all the digests, it had shepherds, it had um, federal reporters, federal supplement, everything in book form. And so that's how research was done with actual books up until 2010. And then 2010, it turned into a more secure online version of Westlaw, which is now what they have in all state facilities. So now everything is digital. And it is actually through Thompson West. Yes. You mentioned, it, for example, in Johnson v. Avery, Johnson was helping people who were illiterate. How useful is a law library to some inmates who may not be able to digest the information in these books. That's exactly what, you know, why Johnson versus Avery was decided because, you know, just providing law libraries themselves is not enough. It doesn't mean that someone will actually be able to read and understand what they're reading or read it, understand it, and then figure out how to apply it to the facts of their case or even know whether or not it applies to the facts of their case. Do you have an example from kind of your experience, someone that you helped who probably couldn't have done much on his own? Yeah. So one example that comes to mind is uh, a guy named David Huck. So David Huck was someone who could not read or write. He had very, I don't know what his education level was, but it was very, it was very low. He was probably in his fifties at the time that I met him. And he kept coming to the law library asking for assistance. Um, at the time I was super busy with, you know, helping other people. And he kept coming back over and over and I kept saying, I'm too busy to help you. You have an appellate attorney assigned to your case. I'm sure that person is you know, more than capable of handling your appeal. And you just kept saying, no, please just look at my case and tell me what you think. So this was someone who actually had an attorney working on his case. Yes. He had an assigned appellate division uh, attorney. What was he charged with? He was charged with aggravated criminal contempt in the first degree and um, felony assault in the second degree. So he hit someone allegedly? Yes. He allegedly hit someone while there was an order of protection um, in place against that person. And so he kept coming back to the law library. And finally, one day I said, you know what? All right, I'll, just, I'll take your stuff. I'll look at it. Like I, I knew he couldn't read, but I just felt that because he had an attorney, you know, things would be okay for him. 
I wanted to focus. I was already focused on other people's cases. I didn't want to take time away from that. But he kept coming back so frequently. I was like, okay, fine. And so I took his transcripts and his discovery material and his you know prior pretrial motions and everything else. And I went through them all. And I came across two issues I felt were worth arguing. Uh, I knew I didn't have the time to prepare the brief myself. So I drafted a legal memo with these two issues with supporting case law showing why the violations happened and why a reversal was warranted. And I sent them to his appellate attorney, and I asked that attorney to please include these in your brief. I'm sure that attorney loved the idea of uh, yeah. another inmate telling him how to do his job. Yeah, attorneys do not like hearing that you want something from another inmate who's giving assistance. They just don't like it. I don't know if it's the ego or, you know, again, it comes back to jailhouse lawyer. Like, you're, what you do is different. Mine is more up here, yours is down here, but it's really, they're the same. And so this attorney did not like it. And so he wrote back and said that I will not include these issues in, in this brief for David Huck because they have no merit. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's a misperception or perception that insight from inside is sometimes best overlooked. Yeah. And, and it was in this case because although the attorney wrote back, so this case has no merit, um, at which point I was thinking, I was like, you know, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to prepare the brief myself. But David was just adamant about, Phil, you have to help me. The attorney said he's not going to include the issues. And he said, if you say there's issues, then I believe that there's issues that need to be argued. Will you please prepare the, prepare the work? And so in the department he was in, I think it was either the fourth or the third appellate uh, department. And in that department, you could file a pro se supplemental brief as a matter of right within a certain number of days from the attorney filing his brief. So if you want to add something that your, your attorney may have not included, you have that right. Yes, in that department. In the first department, the second department down here in New York City and, and Long Island area, the right is for you to request permission from the court to file a pro se supplemental brief. But in the third or the fourth department where his, his case was at, it was, it was just, automatic. Yeah, you did not, have, did not need permission. And so I prepared the issues that I sent to the lawyer. I, um, there were only two of them. One was repugnant verdict and the other one, a legal impossibility. So I filed that. Both briefs were pending in the, in the appellate division for that department. About three months later, the decision came back. Uh, the decision from the court said it rejected everything pretty much that the attorney had filed in his brief. Denied relief specifically and gave reasons why, although all of his issues had no merit. And it actually granted uh, relief and reversed the conviction based on the work that I did Wow, and that, in, the, in the supplemental brief. First of all, I guess congratulations to you um, and to your, your client. That's incredibly rare that appellate divisions will overturn convictions based on a pro se motion. But what was the what was the legal issue involved? So the issue that got it reversed was he was charged with felony assault and criminal and aggravated criminal contempt in the first degree. And the way felony assault works is it relies on a theory of transferred intent. So if you assault someone while committing a felony, even if you don't intend to cause physical injury, but you cause physical injury, the intent to um, harm the person transfers from the underlying felony. So it can't just, felony assault can't just be you assault someone and that's it. Felony assault means you were doing a felony already and then you hurt someone. And so even and it if- it pulls the intent from yeah. the- So even the if the hurting was accidental, the intent from the underlying felony that was already in progress transfers over. So for example, if I'm robbing a bank and I- accidentally hurt someone, Yes. then I could be charged with felony assault, even if I didn't intend it, even if that person maybe fell off their chair and hurt their head. Exactly. And so that was the case here. He was allegedly hitting someone while there was an order of protection against that person. And so the underlying felony needed to have an intent element to the transfer order, over. The order of protection was against him. And that was the person that he hit? The victim in the case, yeah, right, um, filed an, filed for or requested an order of protection to be placed against David Huck, and so he, according to the facts of the case, you know, went into the space and hit the person who actually filed the or requested the order of protection. However, until so the district attorney, when they filed their charges and got the indictment, they alleged that the aggravated criminal contempt, which was the violating of the order of protection was the underlying felony for the felony assault. But because felony assault operates on a theory of transferred intent, you need a felony that has an intent element and well, aggravated. Didn't he intend to break that order of protection? I mean, even if you did, the way the aggravated contempt statute works, it's what's called a strict liability crime. 
So there's no mens rea, there's no mental culpability required to be proven by a district attorney when making their case. Oh, interesting. So this was a legal technicality type of a of a uh, defense. the the law The laws themselves don't stack up. Yeah, and so because this statute, this crime had no intent element, there was legally no intent in existence to transfer to the actual assault part. So felony assault was a legal impossibility, based on this felony, it was a legal impossibility. And so the district attorney didn't realize it, I guess, when they made their charging documents or when they got the indictment. The judge didn't realize it. His trial attorney never realized it. His appeal attorney never realized it. And even when I gave it to the appeal, the appellate attorney, that attorney still rejected it as having no merit. You know, I realized it and I still argued it for him anyway. And that was the case. That was the, the reason the appellate division reversed. And so when they reversed, it also removed his sentence, which was at that time, I think it was 14 to life. So he had been sentenced as a- 14 to life? Yeah, he had been sentenced as a violent, persistent felony offender. And so that entire sentence was thrown out uh, because the conviction was reversed. Was part of the reason why you're hesitant to take his case because it was clear that he actually did assault the person? No. So when I usually take cases or help people, I helped everybody who needed some type of assistance. It wouldn't matter to me if, in my mind, most people were guilty. Some people were innocent. I know I have a handful of friends who are actually innocent and are out now because they were proven to be innocent. But the majority of people either pled guilty or you know were found guilty because they're actually guilty. And so when I go into the cases, I don't look for I'm gonna, people I'm going to help just because they're guilty or not guilty. It's just if they need help and I see an issue that can be you know of use, then then I do it. Why don't we talk a little bit about the practice as a jailhouse lawyer? There's there are some restrictions. There are some rules. And again, these will vary state by state, but one rule is you can't get paid. How did that come about and how does it work in practice? Yeah, so the rule, which is also exists in New York State Prison, you cannot get paid or receive any kind of compensation for providing legal assistance to anyone. So the rule came about because the, the prison system or the administration does not want people to only be able to get legal assistance because they can afford it inside. So it's almost... Like if you want to go just draw a parallel to quality of representation on the outside, some people feel like if you pay like the best attorneys, you'll get much better assistance than you will if you just go with the court appointed. They don't want inmates to be placed in a hierarchy based on their access to cash. Exactly. And so that's why the rule um, exists. Are they able to be paid by the prisons? Yeah. So it's a job like any other job. I mean, the prison rates are um, inside there. The job for a law clerk is probably 24 cents per hour. 25 cents, 24 cents an hour. Yeah. So that's the, the rate you get. And are you time. billing 24 cents an hour when you're you're back in your in your cell thinking about the case and no. doing additional research? It's only for the assigned time that you're actually inside the law library. So it's not like for, for lawyers where, you know, they may be in the shower uh, prepping their oral mm -hmm. argument and, and billing bill the client. Yeah. yeah, not at all. And so that's the, the general rule. And then in practice, um, it varies by the individual, by the the quality of work the individual believes he or she, you know, he can provide. So there are people who do charge occasionally. Did you um, charge? I myself have charged occasionally um, for legal work. Which is a violation of the rules. Yeah. Yeah. If you're caught are we, charging. Are we good on statute limitations here? Are yeah. We, I mean, it's a disciplinary rule. Like disciplinary. Administrative disciplinary rule okay. inside of a prison. They don't have any authority over you anymore? No. Yeah. In practice, you know, compensation is... Uh, exchanged is it's very common and most of the time it isn't that a, a law clerk or a jail lawyer will tell someone well if you can't pay me i'm not going to help you it's i'm going to help you this is what i'm doing and if you want to you could get me this this and this or something of that sort and so the way i did it was i didn't turn anyone down for assistance i actually had a waiting list of people who wanted my assistance and so i'd eventually get to people but the people who i knew had a lot more money than others, like let's say a former attorney who was incarcerated or someone who had a, a bridge contract for doing all the painting for New York City Bridges who was also inside. Those people, I would say, okay, I'm going to do this much work. I'm going to go through thousands of pages of your transcripts and discovery, et cetera. Would you feel comfortable giving me this amount to do that? For those people- Wait, wait a that. second. You are representing a lawyer who's behind bars? I mean, it's not just, you know- low-level common criminals who go to prison. You have state senators who get arrested. You yeah. have people in very high-profile But positions. you actually did work for an attorney. Yeah. Or a former attorney. Yeah. Um, and so in practice, you know, exchange compensation does happen. 
but it's not. Are we talking cigarettes? Are we talking commissary? Different people do different things. And so some guys who feel that they are only going to type a document might say, all right, a couple of packs of cigarettes or some stamps or something. Whereas when you're in full litigation and you think the person is wealthy or you've confirmed it and the person has actually, a lot of people actually who do have the resources will offer to pay you or to give you extra money. And part of that is because you're dedicating yourself to their case, not just in those hours in the law library, you're spending, you're spending some of your own time as well uh, to work on those cases. Yeah. And so it wasn't, like you just said, it wasn't always time in the law library doing the case. It was in the yard. It was in my cell. It was at my, you know, wherever else I might be always thinking like I would actually take the transcripts back to my cell, all the discovery back to my cell. So I'd have like volumes and volumes of paperwork and I would sit through and just go through everything with a fine tooth comb, taking my notes. There's a lot of out of law library time to get this kind of work done. What other restrictions? So you're not supposed to get paid. Are you required to have a certain amount of training by the prison itself? So if you're going to be a law clerk in New York state, New York State's prison system has a formal procedure by which you become a, a law clerk. It's you take a, a legal research course. Once you complete that, you take an exam. And if you pass the exam, then you're authorized to work in law libraries. But you didn't do that in New York State. When I began, so I did it after I started as working as a, working as a law clerk. Um, and then I ultimately became the instructor for that legal research course for many years. Um, but when I first got my first law library job in New York State's prisons in Five Points, I did not do that. I did not have the research certificate. I did not take the class. But I had so much you know, ability that the, um, the officer in charge at that time just said, I'm hiring you no matter what. You know, Once you start, then eventually you have to take this test and get this qualification to continue. But I'm hiring you now. So the formal procedure is you become a law clerk you by taking the course, legal research course, passing, passing an exam. The other way you can also legally be assigned to assist um, another inmate inside of New York's prisons is just by filing a request with the law library supervisor who will then get permission from whoever's above him, the law library coordinator. And so there are people who do not have law library training, but I can go there to the law, the law library officer and say, I would like Joel to help me on my, my legal case. We get along well. I would think he knows what he's doing. And so is that okay? Because there's another rule that says inmates are not allowed to possess any other inmates' legal work in their cells. Interesting. And so to get assistance from someone, even if it's not a another law clerk, you might need, you need permission for that. Because if you're, if someone else's paperwork is found in your cell during a cell search, then you're subject to disciplinary action if you didn't have authorization. So it sounds like you had somewhat of an encouraging experience with the, uh, with the prison staff who was in charge of the program. That's not everyone's experience. There's, there's actually been cases where being a jailhouse lawyer comes with some downside. So yeah, so retaliation and punishment is real, especially when you when it comes to not so much for challenging criminal convictions and helping people in that way, but once you begin helping people challenge the conditions of their confinement or file lawsuits against guards who, you know, either allegedly attacked them or assaulted them in some way, the guards eventually, you know, comes back to them who's filing this, and then they start looking who's helping this person file this. And so you actually become a target yourself from helping people file lawsuits because the Eighth Amendment is actually, you know, that's what, everyone, that's what most 1983 actions are filed on is usually Eighth Amendment yeah, claims. What are, what are 1983 actions? If a state entity violates your federal constitutional rights in some way, you can file a 1983 action against that entity. So here we're talking, you said it's, it's a lot of time, Eighth Amendment, we're talking about cruel and unusual conditions, cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, that's the most common, most common one. I mean, you can do First Amendment stuff, you can do whatever applies to you. But the most common one is Eighth Amendment. And whether it's in the context of being denied medical treatment, which there's a case of Stella versus Gamble, which said, if a, if a Department of Corrections is not providing with adequate medical care, it could be considered deliberate indifference to a medical need. And that would actually violate the Eighth Amendment prescription against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, or it could be something where a guard physically assaulted you, kicked out your teeth, broke your ribs or something like that. And you want to file suit now against the state. You help people, you help other inmates file those lawsuits and the guards that, hear these and things. And that's putting you in a, in a precarious position because when you're an inmate, you're at the mercy of these guards. Yeah. And so when that happens, I mean, all the guards aren't bad, but occasionally there are, there are plenty who do do things they should not be doing. And so when you do help other inmates file litigation against these guards, you too become a target once they realize who's helping them. 
And so the only way to protect against that, like you'll have guards who find out and they'll turn off the power in your cell. They'll start harassing you. You might even be assaulted yourself. Um, there's a bunch of different things that can happen. Um, and the only protection against that is just making it as public, documenting every little thing and including or CCing as many people as possible just to get more exposure to the issue to protect yourself. When in preparation for this interview, we were looking at other uh, potential negative repercussions. And there have been examples where jailhouse lawyers were, in fact, punished by prison staff or faced risk to themselves or, or even their yeah. families. Um, so, yeah, so retaliation and punishment is real, especially when you when it comes to not so much for challenging criminal convictions and helping people in that way, but once you begin helping people challenge the conditions of their confinement or file lawsuits against guards who, you know, either allegedly attacked them or assaulted them in some way, the guards eventually, you know, comes back to them who's filing this and then they start looking who's helping this person file this. And so you actually become target yourself from helping people. The Eighth Amendment is actually, you know, that's what, everyone, that's what most um 1983 actions are filed on is usually Eighth Amendment yeah, claims. What are what are 1983 actions? Um, if a state entity violates your federal constitutional rights in some way, you can file a 1983 action against that entity. So here we're talking. You said it's it's a lot of time Eighth Amendment. We're talking about cruel and unusual conditions, cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, that's the most common most common one. I mean, you can do First Amendment stuff. You can do whatever else exists. Um, whatever applies to you. But the most common one is Eighth Amendment, and whether it's in the context of being denied medical treatment, which there's a case of Stell versus Gamble, which said if a, if a Department of Corrections is not providing with adequate medical care, it could be considered deliberate indifference to a medical need, and that would actually violate the Eighth Amendment prescription against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, or it could be something where a guard physically assaulted you, kicked out your teeth, broke your ribs, or something like that, and you want to file suit now against the state. You help people. You help other inmates file those lawsuits, and the guards that, hear these and things. And that's putting you in a, a in a precarious position because when you're an inmate, you're at the mercy of these guards. Yeah, and so when that happens, I mean, all the guards aren't bad, but occasionally there are there are plenty who do do things they should not be doing. And so when you do help other inmates file litigation against these guards, you too become a target once they realize who's helping them. And so the only way to protect against that, like you'll have guards who find out and they'll turn off the power in your cell, they'll start harassing you. You might even be assaulted yourself. Um, there's a bunch of different things that can happen. Um, and the only protection against that is just making it as public, documenting every little thing and including or CCing as many people as possible just to get more exposure to the issue to protect yourself. So maybe the law is getting you in trouble and maybe the law is helping you, <laughs> helping pro offering some protection. Yeah. But it's, you know, in my sense, most people who are jailhouse lawyers, they do it because it's, you know, it's required. We don't have access to attorneys on the outside who would be free from this type of uh, treatment or, or uh, retaliation. And, but it has to be done. If not, like, who's going to do it? You mentioned this, the example of, of basically prison abuse um, and those cases. What other types of cases are you dealing with as a jailhouse lawyer? So some other examples would be divorce proceedings, um, Article 78 proceedings. So if you want to challenge any any administrative decision by the Department of Corrections or any state agency for that matter. So that maybe, you know, you were moved to a facility that you don't feel like you belong. Not so much you were moved to a different facility. Um, if you were denied something you were supposed to have or if you were found guilty at a disciplinary hearing and you appealed it and it was denied, you want to challenge that now in court, outside of the administrative system, you would take that to court via what's called an Article 78 proceeding. Um, it's also used to challenge parole denials. Um, so after your parole is denied and you appeal the parole decision to the actual Board of Parole, to their appellate unit, if they deny it, it stops there unless you take it to a court through Article 78. So those are very common. Um, divorce, as I mentioned. Why don't we talk about divorce? So. Are you, did you work on family law cases or family law matters while you were inside? Yeah. And so the two most common ones were, the two most common ones were divorce proceedings and child support modification uh, proceedings. So not so much custody. You wouldn't see too many custody issues. Um, there's more because child support. Because they can't take custody. Yeah. So it's more child support and divorce were the two big ones. So w related to divorce, are you, are you negotiating over assets? Are you trying to deal with um, communal property, what type of things 
So you do have to have what's called equitable distribution of property of marital assets in a divorce proceeding. But the divorce that was most common inside, which you could actually do from inside of a prison, were the uncontested types. So if you had an uncontested divorce where both the husband and wife um, decided they both wanted a divorce, it was just simply a matter of preparing the documents, having the incarcerated person um, sign up every sign, you know, sign everything, mailing it out to the wife, and then having her sign everything, and then it would be mailed into the court. Um, there wasn't so much negotiation. If there was any kind of contestation of issues, then it was no longer uncontested, and you couldn't really do it from inside. You would need to actually file a regular divorce proceeding and. At that point, you could help the person prep, but then they'd be on their own when it comes time for them to actually be subpoenaed to a court to have a hearing or something. But the most common were uncontested divorces. What about lawsuits? Were your clients attempting to sue people outside on occasion? or My clients, not so much. Um, occasionally, there were, there were people who wanted to sue on the outside. And for the people who wanted to sue on the outside, so we, as you begin to practice, you develop your specialty. Um, so my specialty, or what I chose to focus on, were, was criminal law, constitutional law, things that affected inside the prison or convictions, and um, trying to get people out earlier. That was my specialty. Um, I'm familiar with the procedure for filing civil lawsuits in state supreme court on the outside. That's not against the prison system, but against regular private citizens. But usually, I would refer those, refer those to a friend of mine who I felt was qualified to. to so just those like cases. just like in the legal community. People tend to find their their niche. Yeah, and so this friend only did civil stuff. He did not. He thought criminal stuff was too difficult and crazy, and so he focused on civil stuff. One thing that that's tended to give jailhouse lawyers, at least in some circles, a bad reputation is frivolous lawsuits, where uh, inmates are just filing incredible quantities of often habeas claims uh, with no merit. Is this something that you saw when you were inside? No, most of the, probably all the claims that I saw that were filed or, you know, being requested to be filed were actually meritorious or they, you know, there was some reason that justified filing some court action for it. So do you credit the the correctional facility for that, uh, for setting up kind of a, uh, a smart enough system that, that frivolous claims would be kind of put to the side? No, so the system itself doesn't actually help so the prison system itself does not help you decide what's frivolous, what isn't. It's just the fact that living under these conditions, you know what's actually happening there. You're seeing it firsthand, the stuff that you would not, not normally hear about as a free citizen out here, or something that you'd hear about and then it just gets denied by higher-ups in the administration. You actually witness on the other side of the wall when you're inside, you see these things firsthand. You know when someone's not getting access to hot water or they're not having their showers or they're, they're waiting months and years for medical treatment. These things actually happen. So everything that was filed that I saw was true. So what, what the point that you're referring to, you know, frivolous lawsuits. Frivolous lawsuits or frivolous motions. Yeah. And so at one point there was a consensus among a lot of the governors throughout the country that this was happening very frequently and, you know, they wanted to end to it. And so I think it was 1995 or four, there was the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which tried to throw some roadblocks into the ability to file um, habeas. lawsuits, including it also applies to habeas corpus, but mostly it was for lawsuits, 1983 actions. And that law did things like remove the ability to file informal pauperous. So before, before that law came into effect, you could always have the filing fee waived in federal court. After that law, it can no longer be waived. It can be deferred. So in the beginning, you can pay a minor portion of the fee, and then the rest of it will be prorated based on whatever your monthly income was. Um, but either way, you're going to, from that law forward, you're going to pay the entire filing fee now. So they're adding roadblocks. They're adding yeah. uh, threshold hurdles. And so the filing fee to someone on the outside, which was like a couple hundred bucks, doesn't seem like a big deterrent. Like, okay, it's you know just a piece of my paycheck. But inside, when you're making 24 cents an hour, 18 cents an hour, the idea that you have to pay 200 bucks or even more than that for a filing fee is a huge deterrent to actually going forward. Is it is $200... Feasible? Is that an amount of money that you can earn on the inside? Over time. Over time, but that yeah. might take... A long time. Six months? Yeah, it might take longer than that. And let's say you want to file soon after you got in. You may need to spend six months or, or a year to earn that money in order to file the claim. Yeah, and so the Prison Litigation Reform Act didn't say that you have to pay it all up front. So like I said, it, it'll, it'll, let you char it'll let you pay <clears throat> a small amount up front and then pay the rest monthly. 
So the judge will set an initial filing fee, which could be like 50 bucks or 40 bucks. So it's little, it's still somewhat doable, but some guys knowing that they don't have that, it'll cost them and they might not win in the end. Some actually think, well, 200 bucks is, is just way too much, too much, too much of a risk. And so that was hope. That was what the governors and the law intended to happen. You know, reduce the amount of lawsuits that were being filed. But it wasn't so much that they were frivolous. I mean, some prior to that law going into effect, there were some frivolous lawsuits. I think like maybe some lawsuits related to my food wasn't hot enough only on this day, or you know the menu was switched around on this day. So some things like that did happen. But over you know the overwhelming majority of cases and lawsuits filed were not frivolous. But the PLRA, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, still had a huge deterrent on subsequent filings, even the ones that had lots of merit. All right, a break for the lawyers listening who want CLE credit for this interview. The code for this interview is all sevens, five sevens. That's seven, 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 seven. So one one thing that happens in closed environments is sometimes you get a situation of groupthink. And I've had lawyers reviewing pro se inmate claims that reference laws that don't exist. You know, uh, a lawyer was telling me about how he had a an inmate claiming a violation of his Universal Freedoms Act, something that I've never heard of mm-hmm. and he had never heard of because it doesn't exist. Is that something that you saw where inmates believed uh, rules or principles that might not actually bear up in, in real life? Yeah, so that happened, I wouldn't say a lot, but it happened more you know, often than not. Um, so you had to be the filter? And usually it's because people didn't understand the laws that did exist or you know, even know what laws existed. And so they would hear something from someone, that person would tell them, oh, you know, they can't do that, or this shouldn't be done, and you know that violates whatever law or something. And that person necessarily doesn't have a thorough understanding either. And so the person hearing this just follows with it and says, "Okay, this is wrong. My friend just told me this is wrong, and this is why." And so then you know this type of thing happens. But it's also demonstrating why you need people trained um, in the law to actually help people. And to that extent, also I'll say that. I also encountered some people I felt that should not have been law clerks or should not have been assisting people with legal work because they were not, they did not have thorough grasp of the knowledge that they're imparting to others. And so there was actually, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was actually one case. It's probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, there was actually one, one case that I know of where the attorney actually recused himself from the appeal because the incarcerated person kept sending letters and memorandum from someone else who was helping him with his case, but everything that guy was sending was just complete, completely wrong um, and not supported by anything. It was just like bizarre, some of the stuff that that guy. So the lawyer was thinking, gosh, I'm trying to help you and you keep sending the judge things that are pissing him off, I'm out. Yeah, and so that actually, I saw that actually happen because of someone. And there's, you know, occasionally you run into people who have no idea what they're talking about, but to the untrained ear, they sound like they know exactly what they're talking about. And people are so hopeful for this kind of help um, that they listen to it sometimes. And maybe they want to benefit from that. Maybe that person is happy to take a couple packs of cigarettes to help someone, even if that help isn't useful. Yeah. And so that happens. And so that was one of my biggest pet peeves while I was inside working law libraries. One, I didn't like law clerks who I felt were not qualified to be law clerks and other people who weren't law clerks who were providing assistance who also you know, were not qualified to provide that assistance. So on the outside, uh, you know, in... In, in our day-to-day lives, if a lawyer is giving terrible advice repeatedly, they might be disbarred. Uh, they, might, they might come in for some type of disciplinary hearing. Is there something like that on the inside or is it just reputation? Or is it just reputational? Just reputation. If the person gets a case dismissed or something because of inadequate advice, you know, there might be a fight because of it. Um, but there's no like formal proceedings like disbarment or you know, you lose your law library job because some people aren't working in the law library. They just, you know, have regular They're jobs. And, yeah. So there's any formal procedure. And so the way I tried to counter or prevent that type of thing happening was once I became the administrative law clerk um, at Five Points, for example, I was then in charge of hiring. And so this, the law library supervisor, this, the correctional officer who's there, you know, he technically is the person who hires the people, but he would always come to me and say, who do you want? 
do you want this person, this person? And so I actually made a, a preliminary quiz for people to take. And if they passed it, then I would consider, you know, letting them work in that law library. Um, so I prevent, you know, inadequate or people who shouldn't have been law clerks, I would like weed them out. You, you, you put I some this. objective standard in place. Yeah. Where, so uh, I created a very thorough test to find out what they actually knew. Um, I did the same thing when I began teaching legal research course because I felt it wasn't thorough enough. So when I became the instructor, I changed the test, changed the curriculum, made it much more comprehensive and gave a large comprehensive exam at the end. And so I felt if they had get through all this stuff, then they were qualified. If you passed my legal research course, you were qualified to do legal research and help people. Talking about help, um, it's actually a violation of ethics rules, generally speaking, for lawyers to help someone who's not a lawyer to practice law. Is there an exception for lawyers to help inmates, to help jailhouse lawyers uh, to do their jobs better? So one of the things that, I don't know if it applies, I don't know if it would be called an exception, but one of the things that Bounds versus Smith discussed was that one of the constitutionally permissible methods of um, permitting access to the courts could be to have attorneys come in and train um, people inside to, you know, prepare writs, prepare whatever legal proceedings that need to be to be done. So that could be one option that states are allowed to take, including New York. Did you did you ever get advice or help from a lawyer while you were um, working as a jailhouse lawyer? Advice or help? No. What about from a law student? Nope. No, that those programs aren't available inside of New York State's prisons. The method that they chose was to provide law libraries and to provide um, some kind of training for inmate law clerks. I mentioned in the introduction that unauthorized practice of law, so, so working as a lawyer, giving legal advice, um, holding yourself out as a legal expert is a crime in most states. Do you know the rules in New York? Yeah, so it's pretty much what you said. It's found in, I think, Judiciary Law 478, I think. Um, but it's pretty much exactly as you said. But it's debatable or not whether jailhouse lawyers are actually included in that rule. Yeah, or even doing the unauthorized practice of law. Because if you look at the New York statute, the way it's worded is if you're holding yourself out as a, a member of the bar to the public when you have no right to do that, which is not happening inside. Um, if you're furnishing attorneys or saying you're an attorney, which is not happening inside. Um, it actually doesn't tell you if you give legal advice, just advice that you're violating that rule. But if you look in court decisions that explain it, you'll see things like just giving advice itself is unauthorized practice of law. And other states are, are much more explicit. I, I think California's rule um, says holding yourself as a lawyer or actually providing legal advice. Mm -hmm. And so... You have a prescription like that, but then you have a U.S. Supreme Court case that says, you know, what other recourse is there to allow meaningful access to the courts if there's not someone trained in law giving this advice and there's no mechanism for attorneys on the outside to provide their services for free or for a really reduced rate or something. So you really have no, like, how do you solve this gray area? And the Supreme Court's come out clearly yeah. and said, if it's done properly, then the work of a jailhouse lawyer is permissible. Yeah, so in Johnson versus Avery, not only in the, the main decision, but if you go into the next decision, the concurring decision, the judge actually goes into much more detail about why legal advice should not be left to only trained attorneys because in this, in this, actual, in this space, you actually need people to do this inside of prisons. And so that justice felt that the law and society in general should not be so uptight about legal advice in this context because if they're not going to do it and there's no way for them to do it, then you have to let people who are not trained in law do this. And he felt it was actually a, um, a service to attorneys because he felt by letting that happen, attorneys could actually focus on other more important issues or something else. And there was one reference to when something's filed in court, like there are certain requirements that filings have to have, whether it's on federal habeas corpus, to see whether something even has merit. Um, the court passes on these issues as it gets it. But to even parse those this, even but to even parse those issues out in the beginning to know whether something should be filed is something that uh, someone who's incarcerated has to do, and it's something recognized by the Supreme Court as being very important, um, even though you're not licensed to practice law. We've been discussing the impact that you were able to have on a number of inmates. You were recognized by your uh, 
by the prison staff as someone with a lot of promise. Do you see any downside in using jailhouse lawyers? No, the only downside would be um, if the training or preparation of those positions wasn't adequate, that would be the only downside because then you'd have people, you know, giving advice and helping who just really shouldn't be doing it. But if they're properly trained, then there is no downside because they're filling a, filling a role that no one else is going to fill. Bounds recognized, um, just and so did Johnson versus Avery. Just pro- just providing a law library access to legal books or information isn't enough. Like people need for it to be interpreted to know how it applies to their case, um, what steps they should take based on that information. And once your first appeal as of right is over, there's no longer an entitlement to an attorney. That sounds like an argument for uh, other states to to implement this type of institutionalized system where jailhouse lawyers receive training and uh, operate with some oversight. Yeah, I mean, if the other states aren't doing that already, then I think that would be a really good idea. New York, you know, has done it for a long time. I think even New York's requirements should be a little more strict. The curriculum should be more thorough. It should be similar to the one that I created because I, I was totally opposed to anyone getting the job that should not that I felt should not have it. So should, you know, just like you can get a, a GED in, in prison, should you be able to get a, a law degree in prison? Yeah, and I mean, you could. There have been people who, have, who actually have earned law degrees through correspondence programs probably in the 80s and maybe early 90s. There were some law schools throughout the country that did offer that option. That would be awesome if that was another thing available to anyone who wanted to go through the uh, academic rigor of a law degree. That would be great, actually. So yeah, I mean, you're you're not getting a law degree though currently, and so that means how many cases? I mean, rough estimate. How many cases did you work on as a jail hustler? Oh my God, rough estimate. I don't think I could even give you an estimate. I can tell you. Are we talking about hundreds? From I started in, in law libraries from 1999, and probably didn't stop until mid 2015. So we're talking about thousands, thousands of cases, not hundreds. Yeah. So you did thousands of cases. Then eventually, um, you know, you're sitting with us in in Soho. You served your time. You were uh, you were released. Now you can't do it anymore. Yep. Part of me misses it. Um, it I think it's fun to have thousands of pages of documents and having to find that little missing needle in the haystack, the one thing that could actually overturn this case. So I do miss that part of it. Or, yeah, I just miss it. And if I were to do the things I did inside out here in terms of legal work, it would I think it would definitely qualify as an unauthorized practice of law out here. But it is something I miss. Um, and so to that extent, I still play around with the idea of going to law school, um, loosely studying for the LSAT. Um, All right. So maybe you will. Maybe so. you will be, uh, be uh, joining the bar one of these days. Possibly. So the attorney-client relationship is a very special one in the sense that it's granted these rights, the, the, the privilege and the confidentiality where the what's discussed is can be kept between the attorney and the client. How does that work in a jailhouse lawyer setting? So in, in New York's prisons, when you become a law clerk, actually when you've passed the, the examination to become, you know, you've taken the legal research course and you've passed the examination, you get what's called... You have to sign what's called, um, I think it's called inmate law clerk agreement, which includes a bunch of ethical considerations. And one of the things included there is that you have to maintain confidentiality for any person you're working with. You can't share that information with anyone else. And so it's formalized. There's a formalized agreement. Um, if you're found to have violated it, then you can lose your job um, if you're a law clerk at the time. Usually it's not a, a big issue. You know, occasionally someone might talk over, you know, talk about someone's case with someone else um, in terms of seeking advice or further or different ways to approach it. But generally, people keep people's uh, confidences. Okay, so inside. basically, you're saying there's a there's as a matter of culture, confidence confidentiality is maintained, but the privilege, the the right that that information remains sacrosanct is not there. True, <clears throat> it is not a a right. It's not the same as attorney-client privilege. So, for example, um, if you were called to testify somewhere, you would be free to answer the question. 
Um, so administratively, you know, it's advised confidentiality must be maintained, but it's not the equivalent of true client attorney, attorney client privilege. Are there any examples? I mean, you might not be uh, familiar, but are there any examples where the jailhouse lawyer is called to testify uh, against his client? So I don't know of any examples personally. I mean, I've read a newspaper article where it actually happened, but it was a while ago. But I've, I've read articles where it actually has happened or where the, the person gained information from helping the person and then used that information, stuff that the authorities did not know about. And then they uh, used that information to make a deal for themselves to uh, get out earlier. So I've read articles about that actually happening. You mentioned that you, you were convicted for armed armed robbery. What did that, what was the sentence? So the sentence I received was a determinate tw uh, 20 years, and it required me to serve a little over 17 years inside before um, being released and finishing the rest of it on parole. So you were 19 and you were given 20 years. Yeah. So what did you actually serve? Like 17 years, a month and two weeks or something something around there. So from December 28th of 1998 to February 10th, 2016. That's an incredible amount of time uh, in prison. And during that period, were you, were you helping as a jailhouse lawyer for what, what portion of it? So the, for all of it, pretty all much except it. for like the last six months, the official... <laughs> you retired six months, uh, huh? six months early? Yeah, I began to wind down my, <laughs> my practice. <laughs> So in the beginning years, that was my only job, like just a library clerk. Um, and then in later years, I began doing other stuff while also doing the legal work stuff because I had also begun um, attending college programs. And, and so the time I had for law library work was lessened, but I still did stuff on my own free time after that, helping uh, people. And that continued all the way up until mid-2015. And now you, you have a role in, in monitoring prisons. Uh, what, what type of work are you doing now? Yeah, so now I'm, I'm the Associate Director of Policy at the Correctional Association. And so mainly I'm doing the policy aspect of everything, but the entire organization goes to prisons to monitor them, um, inspect them, look for rights violations, look to see what's happening. And we report those findings to the legislature and to the public in general. Do you go to the prison that you actually serve time in? Yeah, so I've been to a couple of them already, of ones I've actually been in, three of them so far that I've been in. Are they uh, proud of you? So... I don't know. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, you went on to do great things. You're now you're now you're actually. Uh, uh, so I'd say the staff that a lot of the staff doesn't recognize me when I walk in there with you know college shirt and a tie or something or they just not. You know, I also had hair back then, so <laughs> <laughs> so they don't really recognize me when I walk in. However, to have the the visit approved, um, the application process. Department of Corrections does a screening so they know who has actually been convicted of a felony or who has actually done time in New York State's prison. So the higher ups do know. So the superintendent will know, he'll be informed, um, but the rest of the staff might not know. Most of them don't. Once, do they start to know when you're, you're speaking with a lot of, uh, you understand the way things work really quickly? Yes, yeah, so there's always a balance. Like sometimes um, if someone's being super just forthcoming in certain information. You know, I don't like to, I won't want to emphasize, you know, well, I know for a fact what actually happens because I was here before, you know, I'll just let them talk and it'll go into a regular conversation. One difference I know it is that on the, when you're on this side, not, you know, on the inside wearing green, the staff is more likely to talk to you as a regular person. So they'll open up about where their kids are going to school, where the best place to eat dinner, how much land they own, what they're doing for vacation. You have do you, regular. What do you mean by wearing green? Um, the prison uniform inside is green. Okay. And so when you're out here, they talk to you as if you're, as if the prison part never happened. It must be a very different experience. Now you're going into prisons, sort of checking up on them. Yeah. And so like, it's actually a wonderful irony, I think, just to know that a few short years ago, you know, this system was monitoring me and now... My role is to monitor it. So I think that is an interesting irony. That must feel good. Yeah, it does, actually. Well, Philip, I, I really appreciate your time today. This is a topic that many of our viewers probably aren't familiar with. 
um, but should be. Thank you, Joel. It was a pleasure being here and talking about all of this. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.